Well, good Sunday and happy Mother's Day, South Valley Community Church. We're in the last week of our series, Lessons from the Wilderness. And next week, we're going to start a sort of parallel series, uh, Lessons from the Early Church. And so we'll be jumping into the book of Acts. But we wanted to, to finish this week in the wilderness. And if you're just joining us, we're at a time in biblical history where Israel is between two locations, Egypt and the Promised Land. And right now we're going to be in the book of Deuteronomy, specifically chapter 6, and Israel is being prepped to enter the Promised Land. Now, the verse we're going to look at is probably the most significant verse in the Old Testament. Historically, it is certainly the most influential. It is absolutely central to the Old Testament, and even to this day, it's the most central verse for religious Jews practicing the faith. The verse is called the Shema, and we'll get into the reason why it's called that. But let me just set up a little bit of the context. In chapter 6, Moses begins prepping Israel to be the first generation that enters into this promised land. Remember, the previous generation, they've died in the wilderness. So chapter 6 begins, verse 1. Now, this is the commandment, the statutes and the rules that the Lord your God commanded me to teach you, that you may do them in the land to which you are going to possess it, that you may fear the Lord your God, you and your son and your son's son, by keeping all his statutes and his commandments, which I command you all the days of your life, and that your days may be long. Hear therefore, O Israel, and be careful to do them, that it may go well for you and that you may multiply greatly as the Lord, the God of your fathers, has promised you in a land flowing with milk and honey. So this, this is it. I mean, this is what they've been waiting for. They've been wandering around in the wilderness, and now the land of milk and honey is there. And God says, this is what you need to listen to. This is what you have to obey. And the book of Deuteronomy will cover a lot of different commands and rules and statutes, but what is central is what appears in verse 4. Hero Israel... The Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. Now this verse is so central that for the Jewish people throughout history, it was the first thing you would say at your waking. You'd say it in the morning as a part of your prayer. You'd say it in a part of your prayers when you go to sleep. You would want it to be the last thing you said before you died. People would write it on their doorposts so that when they left the house, they would see it. And when they came home, they would see it. it. It was central to the way of life, covered all domains of life. And what I'd like to do is break down this verse, kind of go through the significant key words so we can get a full and complete understanding of it. So the first word that you encounter is the word here. And here in Hebrew is Shema. And that's why this verse is called the Shema. It's just from the first word, the hero Israel, the Lord your God is one. Now, there is a little bit of overlap between the word here and the word in English and the word Shema in Hebrew. There's, there's some distinctions, but some of the time, some of the ways we use here, it, it could kind of give you a clue into how it functioned in the Hebrew world. So it doesn't just mean hear, like I am picking up audible noises and my brain is receiving them and it's translating to something in my mind. I mean, you, it's not just merely hearing something. There's an idea that you are supposed to listen and when you listen to what you hear, in the Hebrew mind, the implication is that you would do it. You would obey. And we, we use this kind of thing in English when we're talking with kids often or so. You might say something like, um, are you going to listen to me? 
Are you going to listen to me? And embedded in that word listen is the idea that you're not just going to hear something, but son or daughter, are you going to obey what I'm telling you? So it's not just hearing, it's listening with the intent to obey. So Shema Israel, listen with the intent to obey. The Lord, our God, the Lord is one. Hebrew word for one here is echad. And what this scripture is trying to communicate is, is a number of things, but it's talking about the oneness of God, the singularity of God in his being, but also the fact that Israel is to worship this one God. So it reveals something about his nature, but it also reveals what Israel ought to do and believe. There is one God. All the other gods do not worship them. Remember, Israel's coming from a, a polytheistic situation. In Egypt, there's multiple gods, multiple deities for this river, for that mountain, for the sun and the moon. And now the Shema is saying, one God and worship him alone. Goes on in verse five, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. Hebrew word for love here is Ahav, and it functions similarly in English, the, the, the Hebrew word. You can love uh, children, you can love parents, you can uh, love a friend, you can love food, like I love sushi, um, and it also could mean romantic love. So Ahav functions in all those different types of way. In Old Testament, we see it used for people, relationships, friends, spouses, and even food in the Old Testament. So you're supposed to love the Lord God with all your heart. Hebrew word heart, levav. And there is some distinction here from how we use the word heart in English. Oftentimes, when we say loving something with your heart, heart communicates affections or emotions, and that's certainly included in the, in the Hebrew concept, but it's, it's talking more, more than just that. It's like your thoughts, your affections, all this sort of immaterial parts of you. So not the physical components of you, but anything that is you that is immaterial. Hearts affect your heart, your thoughts, your affections. Set them upon this one true God. And it says, you're also to love him with all of your soul. Now, soul is the Hebrew word nephesh. And this, this is what's interesting. Nephesh denotes your throat or your neck. Your throat or your neck. And you might say, well, how do you love God with, with your neck? Well, you, you, have to, you have to go deeper than that. What's, what's inside of your neck? Your breath. So this idea of, of breath. And when you think of your breath, what are you to think of? your life. And so nephesh is breath or life. You first see it in Genesis chapter 2, way at the beginning of the Bible. God creates Adam, and it says that God breathes into his nostrils, and the man becomes a living nephesh. Some translations will say living being or living creature, but now he's nephesh. He has life. And so the word nephesh is communicating that you were to love God with all of your life, all of your being. As long as you have breath in your lungs, you are to love this God. And the last word it says is to love him with all of your might, Hebrew word meod. And it's, it's, it's a descriptive word trying to communicate like the level of intensity, like the degree at which you ought to love this God with your heart and your soul. And so it's all of your strength, all of your might. Now, 
even though it's important to look at all of these words individually, like heart and soul, the important thing to note is the verse is trying to say, you are to love this God with the sum total of your being, all that you are. The sum total is to to be a person who loves the one true God of Israel. Goes on in verse six. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children. It's a key component. People are supposed to teach their children. One of the dangers, especially in the kind of the modern church world, is that you, you, you may think as a parent, if you have children, that the church is the place of religious education, or that's the place where they learn about God. No, no, no. Parents are supposed to diligently teach the commands to their children. The household is the number one place of discipleship. And how often should it take place? Well, that's hinted at in in the very next thing, because it says, you shall teach them to your children, and you shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way. So when you sit in your house and you're walking, it kind of sounds a, a bit confusing, but think about this. What it's trying to say is that you are to do this all of the time. Teach your children when you're at your home, in leisure time, when you're walking somewhere, when you're going somewhere, when you're you're going to a certain location. Teach them to your children. Teach the commands diligently to your children at all times. Now, one of the other important notes is that the Jewish culture, and many cultures for that matter, are much more communal than the modern American culture. And so this text is saying specifically for parents to teach their children, but embedded in kind of all of the Old Testament is this idea that there's a community of faith. And so you may be at a phase of life where your grandparents, or maybe you're single and you don't have kids. The point is that all of us as a community of faith are supposed to be teaching each other and reminding ourselves of these truths. We do this together and we do it all the time as we walk by the way, as we're sitting in our homes. It goes on. It says, you shall teach them diligently also when you lie down and when you rise. So what's the concept there? When you lie down and when you rise, before you go to sleep and right when you wake up. This is why To this day, many people will recite the Shema right when they wake up and right before they go to bed. Verse verse 8, you shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. Now, this could kind of seem strange. You, You are to bind the commands on your hand somehow and also on the frontlets between your eyes. Now, there are many people... In the, in the Jewish faith community who, are, who practice the faith that take this command in a very literal manner. And you might have seen this in pictures or if you've been to Israel or, or been around a, a Jewish faith community where there's like a little box tied upon someone's forehead and there's a rope around someone's arm with a little box around their hand. And it's taking this verse in a very literal manner of like taking the scriptures and binding them on your, your forehead and on your hand. Now, what the the text is communicating, though, is something powerful. Whether you do this literally or not, here's the important part. The commands of God are to be here, and the commands of God are to be here. Now, think about what is that trying to communicate. Here is the place where you see and perceive reality, your eyes. 
How do you see and perceive reality? What are your thoughts? How does the Shema give you a lens to see reality through? And then how does the Shema go to your hands? In other words, how do you live out in action the truths of the scripture? So what it's saying is that you ought to think and perceive the world in a way that reflects the commands of God, and then that should flow from your mind out to the external world with your behavior, your actions. How do your hands, what do you do with your hands, how do they acknowledge the reality of the oneness and tr- the oneness of God? It's powerful imaging, very powerful. And then the last part of it says, you shall write them on the doorpost of your house and on your gates. When you leave your home, you're reminded, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. When you come home from work to see your family, you're reminded, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. We shall love him with the sum total of our being. So you see how how this is, is trying to integrate the reality of God into every component and facet of reality. It's integrated into every area of life. When you rise, when you sleep, when you go out, when you come home, when you're walking, when you're at home, the oneness of God should infiltrate every component of our lives, and then we should behave in a manner that reflects that. Now, there's tons of different implications from this that that we could reflect on, but what I want to focus on is three components uh, that come out of the Shema. One is, is that the Shema is worldview shaping. It gives us a lens by which we see the world. Israel was coming out of a world where there were multiple gods and there was people worshiping these other gods. Now we're removed by thousands of years, but it's not, it's not much different. There's all kinds of things vying for your worship, get, trying to steal your attention from that which is most important. And if you let the Shema shape your worldview, you go, I give my unadulterated love and devotion to the one true God. Secondly, the Shema functioned historically as a pledge of allegiance. It's a way to say, Israel, you know who your God is. Worship him alone. We declare our allegiance to this God. And third, it functioned as a statement of defiance. Um, There's an example of this historically with, with a man named Rabbi Akiba. And Rabbi Akiba lived in a time where teaching the Torah was made illegal, and he was put on trial, actually facing execution for continuing to teach the Torah. And there's this legendary story that as he's on trial facing execution, he smiles and recites the Shema, Hero Israel, the Lord our God is one. And sort of the legendary stories say that he that Akiba said that all his life he had recited the Shema and desired to love God with the sum total of his being. But now facing death, he finally had the opportunity to demonstrate that he indeed does love God with all of his heart and with all of his soul because he's willing to give up his life for the truth of the scripture. And so the Shema is a a worldview shaping command. It is also a way that people pledge allegiance to the one true God. And then it's a way to defy and say, I'm not going to bow before anybody else. I'm not going to worship this God. I'm not going to worship this God. I am going to stay loyal and obedient to the one true God. 
Now, this is not the last time we encounter this verse. And it's for the Christian, we actually see it in another spot, Mark 12, 29. And many people are more familiar with this encounter of it with Jesus. Mark 12, 29, verse 28. And one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another, and seeing that he answered them well, asked him, which commandment is the most important of all? Jesus answered, the most important is, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and all your mind, and all your strength. The second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. So the truths are established in the Old Testament, but then Jesus is here and he's put on the spot and he reaffirms the centrality of these scriptures. He says, this is the greatest command. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one, and you are to love this God with the sum total of your being. And there's this fascinating kind of flow of the love that's demonstrated in the connection between the first and the second command. It's this idea that as you love the one true God with all of of your being, all of your might, all of your strength, that then that love flows from kind of the vertical domain between you and God to the horizontal domain between you and others. Love for God flows down and turns into love for other people. But you have to understand that first and foremost, the Christian ought to love God. You can't, you can't have one without the other. It's from our love for God and our devotion to Him that then we are empowered and equipped to love others in the ways that God would have us. Now, one of the, the interesting things is sometimes people think, oh, that's, that's, this is great news. This is, this is easy commandments, two simple ones. Jesus makes it so simple. All you have to do is love God and love other people. And it's like, are you kidding me? Have you ever tried to love God with all of your being? And have you ever tried to love others in the way that God would have you? I mean, this is a very difficult thing. If you think it's simple, then then you need to reflect on it more. I mean, it is difficult to love other people. And especially by the standards that that Christianity gives you, because Jesus also says you're to love your enemies, Bless your enemies. Pray for them. This is a a love that has to be supernaturally empowered. If we're going to love like Christ, you are going to need His Spirit. Now, you're also going to need an example. And Christ just doesn't teach these things. Christ embodies the Shema perfectly. And He demonstrates His love for His Father and for and love for people in a way that the world just wasn't ready for. Christ goes to the cross in love and obedience to his Father. And then why is he at the cross? What is he doing at the cross? What does he say? What are the words? First, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit is, is one of the things he says on the cross. And one of the other things is, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. And in Christ, you see the perfect embodiment of the Shema. Unadulterated love for the Father. 
laying it all down, giving his life. And then in that act, he is also demonstrating his love for others by saying, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. And so in Jesus, we see these truths in action and it's him to him that we have to turn to and follow. And so as we wrap up this series, I wanted to focus on this, this central, the centrality of the Shema. The Lord our God is one and we shall love him with all of our heart and all of our soul and all of our might. Then we turn to Jesus repeating that command and saying the second command is to love others. And so what is our big lesson from the wilderness? There's a lot of different ones. But most importantly, the number one thing that we can take away from this as as believers, we are to follow in Jesus' example and love our heavenly Father and love others. Now let's pray and ask for the ability to do this. So Father God, we, we do ask you for your spirit to empower us and to equip us to love others. And we want that love for others to be rooted in our love for you, our love for your son Jesus, his work, his finished work at the cross. And so empower us, equip us, inspire us to be people who live out the Shema, that we would integrate it into every component of our lives, that we would talk about it at home, that we would talk about your ways as, as we're walking, that we would remember you and your truth when we wake and before we go to bed. And may we remain faithful to the very end. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.